Part 2. The IRC uses a weird term, alien individual, in the code. They use this term only twice in the IRC, and they do not define the term. They use it in a couple of key places to try to avoid using the term non-resident alien individual in order to obscure the fact that nationals of the United States are considered non-resident aliens relative to the IRC. They do define the term in the regulations, but they do it in a provision where the term itself is not even used. They define the term there to exclude nationals of the United States. But that definition has no force of law because Treasury cannot make up definitions for terms. That is Congress's job. Our mutual friend pointed out several places in the regulations where the term alien individual is used, and so far everyone I have seen fits the same pattern. They first use the term non-resident alien individual, then after that they just call it an alien individual in the same sentence or paragraph, trying to equate the two and hoping you will just assume it means only foreign nationals, or that you'll look up the definition at 26 CFR 1.1441-1 and see that it excludes nationals of the United States. It is clear that they are trying not only to hide the fact that American nationals are non-resident aliens for purposes of the code, but to conceal how exactly Americans are duped into this U.S. person tax status on a permanent basis the first time they file a 1040 return. Question 27. Just for clarification, Larry B. Kraft has an entire section on his site wherein National of the United States appears to be people in territories. What say you? Answer 27. It can include those people, but there's no provision, nor could there be, excluding any American from being a national of the United States of America. The term they use is national of the United States. You can also construe that to mean USA in the IRC. IRC 873A, General Rule. In the case of a non-resident alien individual, the deductions shall be allowed only for purposes of Section 871B and, except as provided by Subsection B, only if and to the extent that they are connected with income which is effectively connected with the conduct of a trade or business within the United States and the proper apportionment and allocation of the deductions for this purpose shall be determined as provided in regulations prescribed by the Secretary. Exceptions b. The following deductions shall be allowed whether or not they are connected with income which is effectively connected with the conduct of a trade or business within the United States. 1. The deduction allowed by Section 165 for casualty or theft losses described in paragraph 2 or 3 of Section 165c. Losses, but only if the loss is a property located within the United States. 2. Charitable contribution. The deduction for charitable contributions and gifts allowed by Section 170. 3. Personal exemption. The deduction for personal exemptions allowed by Section 151, except that only one exemption shall be allowed under Section 151, unless the taxpayer is a resident of a contiguous country or is a national of the United States. This is, I believe, the only mention of nationals of the United States in the IRC. Question 28. If a citizen and or resident of the United States means a serf subject to its jurisdiction, why would not a national be serf subject to its jurisdiction? Answer 28. Because nationality is by birth right, or an equivalent right acquired via naturalization. 
Congress has no power to take your nationality away from you, so as long as it was lawfully acquired. They can strip a naturalized citizen of their nationality if it is found that fraud was committed in the immigration or naturalization process. But other than that, they cannot touch it, so they certainly cannot tax it. Question 29. So this means that the rights of a national born in D.C. are equal to one born in California. Answer 29. Yes, any American born in the USA is a citizen under the Constitution. They do not need the 14th Amendment. 14th Amendment was for freed slaves who otherwise would have no lawful claim to citizenship in any state. It is not the same citizen we see in the IRC. Different definitions of United States, as we have discussed. 14th is in the Constitution, while the IRC is federal law. The states are the author of the 14th Amendment, while Congress is the author of the IRC. Different powers. Congress is subordinate to the Constitution. They make federal law. Big difference. Americans born abroad to American parents are also citizens, but this is by way of Congress, not the 14th Amendment. Question 30. You mean citizens? Answer 30. Yes. If they never come back to live in the USA, they are not necessarily guaranteed citizenship, so there are conditions. A citizen under 14th can live anywhere he wants and still always be an American national. He cannot be deported no matter what he does. He cannot be involuntarily stripped of his nationality no matter what he does. This extends the meaning of the 14th beyond the slave liberation. As I said, a native-born American does not need the 14th Amendment. It only clarifies who is a citizen for constitutional purposes or naturalized. It clarifies things for them, too. There were naturalized Americans before the 14th Amendment, of course. Bottom line is 14th Amended Citizen is not the citizen of the United States IRC is talking about. It is defined differently. First of all, the term is not even the same. It is citizen or resident of the United States. You never see these things separated from each other in the income tax provisions of IRC. Never. That is a big clue. It means either or. They are treated the same, and resident can only mean resident alien, since it does not matter where a citizen resides for him to be taxed. Question 31. So the citizen of IRC equals resident alien treated exactly the same for income tax purposes. Thus anyone agreeing to be treated as a citizen or resident, and any activity agreed to be treated as trade or business within U.S., becomes subject to tax for the purposes of the IRC? Answer 31. Yep, the election is right there at IRC 7701B1, election to be treated as a resident alien. People are trying to revoke an election under 6013G, but they never actually made that election to begin with. As far as the activity agreed to be treated as trade or business becoming subject to tax, that is the meaning of gross income that is effectively connected with the conduct of a trade or business for a non-resident alien. It is not the activity. It is the item of income and the tax treatment of it by the very taxpayer that makes it effectively connected. Question 32. Is it not limited only to non-resident aliens as long as one agrees to be treated as? Answer 32. There need not be any taxable activity so as long as the taxpayer declares it as effectively connected or allows the presumption that it is. For U.S. person, all income is gross income unless there is a specific statutory exemption. 
Question 33. Does this not contradict Otto Skinner's activity premise? Answer 33. Yes, his understanding was a bit too narrow. As I recall, he thought you could just demand they prove you engaged in a taxable activity. I think he is correct as far as his analysis of what is taxed under the written law. But all of that is pretty much irrelevant when you assess yourself with tax because you don't know any better. Or you get assessed based on presumptions generated by third parties reporting. It is all quasi-contractual. Consequently, the written law hardly matters when it comes down to the business of manufacturing a tax liability. It is a constructive fraud in which most of the marks take part themselves. When you assess yourself with tax, you have no one to blame but yourself because every one of us is presumed by law to know what he is doing. Question 34. Do you think we should analyze the Walby case now? Answer 34. I think so. I think it helps to illustrate my point that the SSN is being silently presumed as the basis for U.S. person by the courts in non-filer cases. It makes sense that they would not tell you that, too. You are presumed to have read the law and know what you were doing. The regulation at 301.6109 explains that SSN is presumed to belong to a U.S. person, but no one is obligated to explain that to you. To keep you from finding out, they use these red herring explanations in the court rulings. Part of the scam is to convince the sheeple that we are all being taxed just for being American. Thus, they always cite 14th Amendment when somebody argues he's not a citizen. B. Miss Walby is a United States citizen. It is well understood that, with few exceptions, individuals born in the United States are indeed United States citizens. The 14th Amendment, which was ratified on July 28, 1868, provides, in relevant part, that all persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States and of the state wherein they reside. Similarly, Congress has declared that a person born in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof is a United States citizen at birth. 8 U.S.C. Section 1401A, 2012. This provision has been in force since 1952. 4. See Immigration and Nationality Act, Chapter 477, Section 301A1, 66 Stat 163-235, 1952. The exception to birthright citizenship, i.e. individuals not subject to the jurisdiction of the United States, is a narrow one. It applies only to children born to foreign diplomats, which typically enjoy immunity under federal law and are thus not subject to its jurisdiction, and certain other diplomatic officers. C8 CFR Section 101.3 A to B, 1101.3 A to B, 2014. Miss Walby does not allege that her parents were foreign diplomatic officers at the time of her birth. Indeed, both of her parents were, like her, born in Michigan, and thus have always been United States citizens. A United States citizen can, however, lose her citizenship by voluntarily performing certain acts with the intention of relinquishing United States nationality. 8 U.S.C. Section 1481A. As relevant here, one such act is by making a formal renunciation. CID Section 1481A 5-6. A person renouncing her citizenship while in the United States must do so formally in writing. In such form as may be prescribed by and before such officer as may be designated by the Attorney General 
whenever the United States shall be in a state of war and the Attorney General shall approve such renunciation as not contrary to the interests of national defense. ID Section 1481A6 Miss Ms. Walby apparently attempted to renounce her citizenship by submitting her Affidavit of Citizenship, which she executed in Michigan, to the State Department. However, she does not allege that she fulfilled the remaining requirements of 8 U.S.C. Section 1481A6. Therefore, because the burden of proof to establish a loss of United States nationality is upon the person or party claiming that such loss occurred, ID Section 1481B, her attempted renunciation is ineffective. Further, Miss Walby cannot avail herself of the less stringent requirements of 8 U.S.C. Section 1481A5 because that subsection only applies to renunciations made while abroad. CID Section 1483A, providing that loss of nationality while in the United States can only take place as provided in 8 U.S.C. Section 1481A6-7. Finally, Miss Walby does not allege that she took any other acts listed in 8 U.S.C. Section 1481A that would result in loss of citizenship, that the State Department has issued her a certificate of loss of nationality, or that a court of competent jurisdiction has declared her to be a non-citizen. CIRC Section 877A-G4, listing when a citizen shall be treated as relinquishing her United States citizenship. 7701A-50. A. An individual shall not cease to be treated as a United States citizen before the date on which the individual's citizenship is treated as relinquished under Section 877A-G-4. Accordingly, Miss Walby has failed to demonstrate that she is not a United States citizen. Indeed, her arguments to the contrary are patently frivolous. C. Miss Walby is a United States resident for tax purposes, even assuming for the sake of argument only that Miss Walby is not a United States citizen. She is still a resident for tax purposes, and thus her argument that she is a non-resident alien, not subject to tax, fails. For tax purposes, an individual is classified as either a 1. United States person, i.e. a citizen or resident of the United States, or 2. Non-resident alien, i.d. Section 7701A30AB1, Accord Treasury Registry, Section 1871-1A. For purposes of the income tax, alien individuals are divided generally into two classes, namely resident aliens and non-resident aliens. Resident alien individuals are, in general, taxable, the same as citizens of the United States. A non-citizen is treated as a resident with respect to a particular calendar year in three circumstances. 1. Obtaining lawful permanent residence at any time during the year. 2. Meeting the substantial presence test. Or 3. Making a first-year election IRC section 7701 b one a. A person is treated as a non-resident alien only if she is neither a citizen nor treated as a resident, i.d. section 7701B1B. All emphasis added by me, M. Michigan is located within the United States, i.d. section 7701A9. Miss Walby therefore meets the substantial presence test because she was present in the United States for the entirety of the 2014 through 2018 tax years. She does not allege that any of that time is exempt for purposes of the test. CID Section 7701 B35 Describing the requirements of the substantial presence test 
and its exemptions. Further, because a person who meets the substantial presence test for a particular year is deemed a resident as of the first day during that year on which she is present in the United States, ID section 7701B2A3. And because Miss Walby was present for the entirety of each of the years at issue, Miss Walby was a United States resident for the entire 2014 through 2018 tax years. D. Miss Walby is subject to federal income tax having established that Miss Walby is a United States person, either by citizenship or residency pursuant to the substantial presence test. The court considers whether she was subject to federal income tax for the 2014 or 2016 through 2018 tax years. The Internal Revenue Code provides that a United States citizen or resident with gross income above a certain amount in a taxable year is generally subject to tax and must file a tax return for that year. ID section 6012A1. See generally trees reg section 16 section 1.6012-1. A citizen or resident must file her tax return using form 1045 whereas a non-resident alien is required to file a tax return must doing so using form 1040NR. ID section 1.6012-1A6B11. Although the court invokes the 14th Amendment, this is a red herring. The real reason the court is finding her to be a citizen is due to her being presumed a citizen or resident via her SSN. Although she argued that she is a non-resident alien, she did not file a proper return to establish that. 1040 NR. Interesting how the court covers its ass here, saying that she is any case a resident alien. The court mentions the election to be treated as a resident alien that we have discussed, and which I believe is the primary part of the scam. But since this woman did not file a 1040 for any of those years, the judge cannot even silently presume she made this election. But he also needs some excuse for calling her a resident alien, since the SSN is used to presume that the person is a citizen or resident, and the judge has no legal basis for saying it is one or the other. This is why the judge takes the odd step of saying that, in any case, she met the substantial presence test and is therefore a resident alien. Here is the bottom line the judge is trying to justify. D. Miss Walby is subject to federal income tax having established that Miss Walby is a United States person, either by citizenship or residency pursuant to the substantial presence test. The court considers whether she was subject to federal income tax for the 2014 or 2016 through 2018 tax years. Miss Walby therefore meets the substantial presence test because she was present in the United States for the entirety of the 2014 through 2018 tax years. She does not allege that any of that time is exempt for purposes of the test. CID section 7701B35, describing the requirements of the substantial presence test and its exemptions. Further, because a person who meets the substantial presence test for a particular year is deemed a resident as of the first day during that year on which she is present in the United States. ID section 7701B2A. Three. And because Miss Walby was present for the entirety of each of the years at issue, Miss Walby was a United States resident for the entire 2014 through 2018 tax years. See what the judge did there? She did not allege that she is exempt for purposes of the substantial presence test. Therefore, the judge presumed she was present in the United States. 
She did not know she needed to allege she did not meet the substantial presence test. The judge's reasoning is very questionable here, but his decision actually is not. The taxpayer clearly had used an SSN to make her refund claims, an SSN for which she had never changed the status in IRS records from U.S. person. But the judge did not want to expose that as the basis for finding she is a U.S. person. If he had, this would have amounted to pointing toward the exit, so to speak. So instead, the judge relied on the 14th Amendment bullshit as a red herring. This is very common, and the substantial presence test bullshit for another. I have never seen that reasoning used in any other case ever. He was forced to do that because the taxpayer did not admit to being a U.S. person and did not file a 1040. Alas, also did not file 1040-NR. She could not win on appeal just because the judge's reasoning is wacky. An appellate court would do a de novo review of the legal determinations. As long as you agree with the legal determination that she is a U.S. person and thus not entitled to the refund, it is not necessary to second-guess how the judge reached that conclusion. See how it works? This allows the judge to grandstand and say whatever bullshit he wants to as long as he comes up with a proper legal decision. Adherents to sovereign citizen theory believe in a vast governmental conspiracy governed by complex, arcane rules, according to which sovereign citizens are exempt from many laws, including the obligation to pay taxes. Internal quotation marks omitted. The theory that individuals, freeborn, white, preamble, sovereign, natural, individual, common law, de jure, citizens of a state, etc., are not persons subject to taxation under the Internal Revenue Code, has long been rejected as completely lacking in legal merit and potentially frivolous. Lonsdale v. United States, 920-90-2 USTC, paragraph 50, 581, 919 F2D 1440 1448 10th circa 1990 as far as the SSN creating the US person's presumption here's the relevant section G special rules for taxpayer identifying numbers issued to foreign persons 1 general rule 1 social security number a social security number is generally identified in the records and database of the Internal Revenue Service as a number belonging to a U.S. citizen or resident alien individual. A person may establish a different status for the number by providing proof of foreign status with the Internal Revenue Service. Internal Revenue Service under such procedures as the Internal Revenue Service shall prescribe, including the use of a form as the Internal Revenue Service may specify. Upon accepting an individual as a non-resident alien individual, the Internal Revenue Service will assign this status to the individual's social security number. On my 2009 audit I told you about, they never investigated. I could challenge that assessment on that basis. As a matter of law, any income paid to U.S. person is gross income, so it would only be a question of whether you receive the income or not, besides the fact that it would be irresponsible and could blow back on me if someone gets themselves in trouble. There is no guarantee the IRS will accept any return that is filed as valid. They can refuse to accept it. They have done this to one of my clients, and FTB has done this to several of my clients. They can claim the return is frivolous. The IRS and FTB have both done this to clients of mine. They can audit the return later on and try to intimidate you into agreeing to more tax. IRS did this to one client, and FTB has done this too. And I am dealing with the same in a couple of different states. 
Most of those kinds of problems arise when the return is filed very late. When we file before the tax agency is demanding a return, this kind of stuff almost never happens. Almost never. But it could happen with any return. So I am cautious about making this sound so easy that anybody could do it. My clients have me as their insurance against such problems. I do my best to educate them. But in the World Series, you still want your ace on the mound in Game 7, don't you? You don't want to send in the rookie who hasn't pitched in the majors before. The IRS has minimum three years to audit after a return is filed. That's true with any return that is filed. Usually they audit within two years if they are going to. So after two years, it is a safe bet that whatever the IRS agreed is your tax for that year. That's the end of it. IRS has only audited one client of mine for three returns all at once. And we ultimately prevailed in the audit on all three. I'm not going to say it was easy though. This client was super glad to have me helping him through it. The way they devised the scam was to ensure they could not be held liable. It is designed to dupe you into consenting every year without you realizing what you were doing. That is the only way they could work around your fundamental rights. You should know your friend Ed Rivera that these people don't take any oath to protect anything but the coffers of the interests they really work for. I find the moral indignation to be quite naive. Governments have always deceived people. They should never have been trusted in the first place. The reason my approach works is not because the IRS is kind-hearted. What I do establishes leverage. Knowing how the scam really works gives you leverage of forcing them to either accept the exercise of your rights or risk liability by violating those rights. It only seems like IRS is violating people's rights because people cannot see that the victims of enforcement put themselves under the terms of enforcement via their own consent. That will sound weird to people who believe the IRS just does whatever they want with impunity. I assure you, that is not how it works. The IRS can be counted on to do whatever you will let them get away with. That is why knowledge is power and gives you leverage. Not just any knowledge, but understanding what is binding on them. They are not obligated to respond to most of the things people demand in their letters. Show me the law, etc. 